Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio. And you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Eric Conahia, author of Securing the Sacred, Making Your House of Worship a Safer Place. Help security professionals and stakeholders identify and create defense strategies to combat a modern-day threat that most security professionals could not even see coming. Eric had the vision to see that today's social climate created the need for a whole new way of providing executive or diplomatic security. So Eric used his 30-plus years in law enforcement and specialized FBI training to literally create a whole new paradigm in the official standard operating procedures for protective operations. Recognized around the globe as a leader in the executive protection industry, Eric is a certified master anti-terrorism specialist and a collaborator of the Certified Executive Protection Specialist Curriculum. When you use the best of the best, it's not like what you see in the movies and TV. But again, when it's done correctly, neither are the results. 
No drama here. Just a job well done. Eric Conahia, welcome to A Measure of Truth. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey, Eric, how are you, man? My good friend, how are you? I am great. I'm great. I'm so excited to have you on. And, um, you know, this is a topic we have never covered. Um, we've had a lot of people on who've written books about this, um, but not someone who's actually worked in the field at the level that you've had. And uh, right. we're just looking forward to you sharing some of your wisdom. And um, tell us a little bit about um, executive security, and then we'll go in a little bit about what the book covers. Okay, so executive protection, and the word executive does not uh, denote a person, an executive in terms of a title. Executive means an executive level of security, and along with that comes more advanced training, more extensive training, and specialized training to protecting and, uh, you know, high net worth individuals, uh, CEOs, uh, 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 and, and p- those, those who need, need that type of protection is basically, in, in a nutshell, if I give it to you in a five-second nutshell, it's the private sector version of the United States Secret Service. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, the, the protocols yeah. are all the same. It's it looks the same. It, it quacks quacks like a duck, looks like a duck. It's all the same. The difference is it's private sector version of what the Secret Service does. If the people who are operating are well are properly trained. Okay. Lots of equipment, lots of training, and lots of weapons. I, I'm seeing some of the pictures from your website. Um, <laughs> just tell us a you know. You've actually had some FBI training as well. Um, This is pretty extensive stuff. So is this commonplace now for, you know, the private sector? Okay, so the, the, the FBI training I had that I have listed on my in my resume was in was in conjunction with my with my time with the Maryland State Police when I worked undercover operations. So that mm. that training in and of itself had a lot, everything to do with investigations. Um, FBI, uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, came in doing a training uh, portion of us uh, with the Maryland State Police and gave training on uh, surveillance, surveillance uh, detection. Um, uh, modern day interception procedures and stuff like that. So that back then when I took that training, I had no idea that that would tie in to the career field that I was going to go into after I left the state police, but it all tied together. You know, you never know when you need it until you have it. And then it all tied together um, in the end when I started my company in uh, 2000. Wow. Okay. So now when did you actually decide that, this was a time now to um, to write a book about this and to share it specifically with churches, which is a very interesting uh, concept. Ironically enough, Mike, when my first, very first client uh, when I launched my company was a pastor uh, of the church who was running for a, a, a local office within within my county in, in the state that we that I live in, and his. Uh, office got in touch with me about providing this executive protection for him as he went on his campaign. So in the process of us protecting while he was on campaign, a lot of that melded into him coming to church and, and preaching on Sundays. And so what happened was when they saw what we were doing and we would, you know, visit other churches and I would watch what the other church security was doing, 
I realized that they needed help because they were doing a lot of just standing around, not not performing the protocols or the principles of executive protection at the same time. So I knew I put a little, basically a post-it in my mind, said one day I want to be able to help these churches. About three and a half, four years ago, I was a guest speaker at the first annual ICON um, Executive Protection Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. And there was one gentleman I knew that was coming who was interested in the industry. He hadn't been formally trained, but he was interested in the industry, but he was a full-time pastor in New Jersey. So I made it a point. I said, I'm going to talk to this gentleman during this conference. So when the conference was concluded and we were having a uh, meet and greet, I went up to him and said, look, this is what I've been planning on doing. I want to write a book specifically to the churches, and my niche market is going to be the church and not the security industry because I want to get the churches to have a change in mindset on how they should be protecting the church. And I asked him would he be willing to co-author that book because I needed validation or credibility in the church by having someone who was in the church, no, no, better, no better person than a pastor. He said yes. I put him in an executive protection course so he could understand my side of the, of the fence and understand the language and understand the principles. Put him through a course. He finished the course. We sat down. It was a three-year project of me going back and forth to New Jersey, sitting down with him in the office, spending a night in in a church. I mean, we literally camped out in a church and put these uh, put this book together. We came up with the chapters. Decided that each chapter had to be started off with some scriptural reference that would validate the chapter first. Because remember. My intent was to write this book for the niche market of the church and not for the, from the security um, uh, side of the, of the fence. And I made sure that when we launched this book that I told guys in the industry this was not a training book for, for the security professional, but it would give them a better understanding of how to deal with the churches if they wanted to, use the, wanted to foster a relationship with, with the house of faith. And so what we did was, even though the book – it's heavily um, is it, each chapter is uh, is dominated by a scripture in the beginning. The book was written so it it would cover any house of faith. It doesn't matter if it's a synagogue, a mosque, or a Christian church. The principles that are within that book should change the mindset of the hierarchy or the decision makers within that house of faith to say, you know what, this is something we need to implement. And that was the that was the angle that I took. Wow. And so give us an idea of some of the things that you saw, which are probably still pretty common in the church today, um, as far as security goes, uh, some things that you wanted to highlight. And um, without going into any detail, I mean, just give us an idea of some of the things that have been done over and over and over again, just because that's the way we've done them. Okay, so the number one thing in churches, besides the the message and and the, the worship, there's a lot of money, especially specifically within the Christian church, money being passed along. And as I watch the offerings, whether it be the first offering, second offering, or love offering, I watch how they manage the money and protect the money as it moved around the church. And I knew that potentially every church, from the time they collect that money to the time they deposited the money in that bank, they were at risk. It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. a threat, but they were at risk. So that was one of the things that I put you put down and said, we specifically have to talk to this. The second thing I thought about was in a lot of these churches, they have, you know, Sunday school. So you have children there who need mm-hmm. to be protected from predators. So we, we implemented that in a church. The third and probably probably just as important as the other two is everybody that comes to church is normally either trying to improve 
fix their lives, improve their lives, or make the make their lives better. And I also knew that everybody who comes to a church is not saved. So there are people who are coming in who have issues. They have, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of issues. And I wanted to make sure that the pastor or the, the members of the church and the congregation were not put at risk because of that. One of the things that I brought up to this pastor who co-authored the book with me was, is that in my in my daily goings around, you know, protecting this one pastor, I realized that the church is predominantly populated by women. Most of these women are trying to, you know, fix their marriages or what what have you. A lot of times they will spend a lot of time at the church. The husband who's at home is seeing his wife is not at home all the time. The first thing he's thinking is, who is this man that's keeping my wife out of the house? And then then she he hears his wife talking about the pastor told me this, the pastor told me that. Mentally, this guy's thinking another man is is pulling his wife out of the house. And I ran that 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 scenario past him, and he he opened his his, his draw, jaw almost hit the ground. He said that mm. happened to me in my church, and I never realized that. I said you weren't doing anything wrong. She wasn't mm-hmm. doing anything wrong, but the husband at home was saying, who is this man that's pulling my wife out of the house? And then all of a sudden, she starts changing her lifestyle. It affects him to the point where, you know, the pastor told me this, the pastor told me this. Now another man is pretty much dictating what goes on in his house. No ma- no oh. man wants to hear that. Wow. You follow what I'm saying? Wow. And so when I mm-hmm. when I presented that scenario to him, he said, he even as a pastor, he never even thought about that. And so we implemented that within the church. Um, there, were, there were a couple other things that, that were common practice, not just with the church, but just with large gatherings. Uh, let's say, for instance, the, the, like a shareholders meeting. I realized there are certain things, certain characteristics of large gatherings that put churches at risk every Sunday and at, on, on whatever days they have Bible study. So we implemented some of those things and, and used the principles of, of executive protection, implemented it within the book with the whole idea of getting everybody in the church involved. This was a way of them changing their mindset, not necessarily going into their pockets and digging out money, but thing, common sense practices that they could implement within the church that wouldn't cost them anything. And it, 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 the, the reviews on the book have been astronomical. I mean, we, we, we were number uh, one in on, we were number two in Amazon two days after we, um, we launched the book and number one for the mm-hmm. first week. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. And um, is this in just a specific category or is this number one period? It was in it was in uh, it was in church security and and I was surprised because when we when I first did uh, thought about the book I did a search on church security there were a lot of books out there but they were training mm. books specific to the industry and from from my standpoint and the way I look at standards there is no specific thing called church security what you have what you have is church is a niche market within the security paradigm. There's like, you know, when you hear people say, I mean, I'm sorry, celebrity security or celebrity protection. There's no such thing as celebrity protection. It's executive protection with a niche market to celebrities because there are different nuances within each one of those niches that you have to fine tweak you know, you, the, the character of the people that you that you implement in for that service and little teeny little teeny nuances that kind of change you know, the coverage. But the principles never change. All right. And while we're on that topic, give um, our listeners uh, an idea of some of the um, folks that you've actually pro- provided protection for. Um, uh, I know there's been like um, 
members of the um, sports figures. Uh, well, I'll let you say it. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there are. And without 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 violating my non-disclosure agreement, I would sure. say that uh, I I I am responsible for the top 100 CEOs of all the top 100 banks. I will say that um, I, I can I can disclose the fact that I covered Al Gore on a on a nationwide uh, book tour some years back. Um, mm. I'm still under 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 non-disclosure with a lot of, the, lot of my clients, and that's part of the attraction. The reason why I have so many clients and why I maintain some of my clients because I don't disclose and there's reasons why you you have non-disclosure because sure. a lot of these companies don't want don't want people to know who who's that they have protection and who's doing the protection because it what happens is it draws a lot of you know unsolicited uh, marketing from 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 other vendors out there that are trying to compete the the the, the 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 bigger part of the of the thing is that most uh, at least in the Fortune one. Uh, Forbes Fortune One. There's called a key corporate clause, which says that the CEO and the top tier uh, CEO of uh, administration have to be covered by security for their for their insurance policy. So that is part of uh, the draw. Now, I will I will say this: I've never advertised my my business, and most of my business, if not I would say 99% of the business, has been you know recommendations or word of mouth from other CEOs who have uh, been asked by their counterparts. Who is that guy or who is that team that's covering you? We like to uh, hire them, and that's how, how our, our success has been marketed off the fact that you know the the recommendation of a, of a satisfied client is better than any any penny I can put towards marketing. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Just like I said in the intro, a job well done. Yeah, um, appreciate that. And, and this covers um, diplomats and just about anyone you can think of. Um, Absolutely. And- I mean, I started. I cut my teeth with the ambassador from Saudi Arabia, um, who was the ambassador to the United States from Saudi Arabia here in the in the nation's capital. That's how I, I cut my teeth in the industry under when I was working for Vance International. And so, now coming out of um, the state troopers. Um, what what gave you the idea to start a security company? And um, give us a little history of that too, because you retired pretty young. Yeah, I I left I left early. I was in a car accident and I left early. The, oh, the ironic okay. part about it is, right after I came out or left out, I got a phone call from the father of one of the guys who was on my on my narcotics team. And the father happened to be the director for the United States Secret Service. So I was kind mm. of I was in the right place, right time, had the right friends. And he called me mm. and said, Look, I got the perfect place for you if you if you want to, you know, stay within this industry. <clears throat> he said I have a former agent from the Secret Service who has his own executive protection company. And I said, Who is it? His his name was Chuck Vance. I called called the company up and said, you know, I was recommended by Mr. John Simpson, the director of the Secret Service. Oh, yeah, no problem. Come on in. So I came in for the interview. The guy who interviewed me, little did I, he didn't like me at all. I could tell that within the first three minutes of the conversation, he did not like me. You know, fast forward a little bit past that, I realized that he was somebody that wanted to be a state trooper, and it never got accepted. So he kind of took that out on me. Oh, neither, wow. That's neither, that's neither here nor there. The following week after I realized that I didn't get a phone call back, Mr. Simpson called and said, you know, how did it go? I said, well, I didn't get a phone call back, and I don't think that the guy interviewed me like me. The next day I got another phone call from from um, Chuck Vance. Says, come back in. I'm going to have somebody else interview you. I went back in, interviewed with the guy. Later that day they offered me a, a, a job 
and I started there. It, it was a, the, the way that this whole thing transcended from the time I left the state police until where I am right now was all about being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you decided on a career with the state police very early on as well. And um, what was it about the um, law enforcement that um, piqued your interest at, at such an early age? Well, it was funny, Mike, because I was when when I was younger, when I when I was in high school, I, I did I knew that I didn't want to go directly into college. I, I knew that right off the bat. I just I wanted to get in the work field. I come from a from a, from a dual house a dual um, a parent household where work was the was the staple of the conversation. You work hard mm. and and mm. and you take care of your family. So I decided I wanted to work and it was just being around when growing up, I used to always see Maryland State Troopers on the highway, and they, they, they just caught my eye. And right after when I was in the, in high school, when well, let me let me rephrase that. When we were in high school, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I decided that I wanted to to you know try a career at the Maryland State Police. I've I've I had a I felt that I had a a, a heart of servitude that a, that civic the civil service would would be an area that I would. In. I applied, and I was more concerned about my height than anything else, but they had just uh, rescinded the six-foot rule, which which automatically included me at that point. And then I applied for I applied for the, for the job. I got a position in 1980, a year after we graduated from high school, as a cadet. I was in the cadet program for a year and a half, and then I automatically went from the cadet program into the um, academy. Spent six months in there in Pikesville, in good old Pikesville, Maryland, 1202 Ricestown Road. I still remember it, zip code 21208. I spent six months <laughs> of my life in there. And that, when I left to go there, my father told me, Winners never quit and quitters never win. And I remember that every day that I was in there because it was a very arduous um, academy. We were told when we were in the academy that Maryland State Police Academy at that time, which was 1980, was the hardest academy to, to attend. But I, I knew that I was not going home a failure. Um, I graduated from the academy. Got the the, the uh, barrack assignment that I wanted. I wanted to go to Waldorf because I wanted to be a full service trooper and not one that ran up and down the Beltway doing uh, writing tickets. I wanted to do full service work. I got my assignment, and you know, I I I I, I think I did a good job because they they you know transferred me to narcotics, which I wanted to do because I felt that I could have an impact working undercover, um, and and that's where I spent my career working undercover operations across the state. Yeah, yeah, man, and um, you you worked undercover and you made it out, which is another accomplishment. Oh yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you yeah. know the thing about it, is, Mike, I was I was working undercover right during the time when crack cocaine hit the streets. Prior to crack cocaine right. hitting the streets, yeah, mm-hmm. PCP PCP was the biggest thing in this Washington D.C. area, and it was an epidemic. But as soon yeah. as crack came in, PCP took a back seat to crack, and and it has not changed other than when crystal meth came out. But PCP took over our streets. I mean, in a in a in a bad way, and I was right in the middle of that when it hit when it finally hit the streets. Mm, yeah, yeah. I I remember back in the eighties myself. Um, I was in London reading the newspaper Tower Records, and. Uh, what I was reading about what was going on in Washington, D.C. and the Washington Post really scared me. I was afraid to come home. 
Yeah, yeah, it was a scary place back then. And so you mm-hmm. take you take what was going on in the streets um, from you know people being zoned out on PCP to having crack addicts running around. You know, because the PCP addict was just a violent a violent um, smoker. He didn't you didn't you really rarely had incidences where uh, guys who smoked PCP were robbing people. But once crack cocaine came out. The part one, part two, and part three crimes increased tremendously because now you had, you know, break-ins, robberies, and strong-arm robberies where people wanted to wanted to satisfy that 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 desire to stay high, and just the the violent crimes just went out of nowhere. And on top of that, then you start having the murders within the streets, fighting over um, uh, corners. You know, for for, for uh, territory between drug dealers, so it it just really it changed the entire temperature of of the the area that we grew up and knew that we could go outside ride our skateboards with nobody bothering us. <laughs> right, right. And um, interestingly enough, um, you know, my father um, attended the FBI Academy, was a policeman for twenty seven years as well. Um, tried to sort of. I would say shoehorn me into the um, <laughs> into <laughs> law enforcement as well, but I I was just really concerned um, about myself being put in a situation where I would have to end someone's life. So yeah. it, it was something mm-hmm. that that you know really troubled me quite a bit. And I'm a right. person who believes that if you train me to do something, I'm going to do what you train me to do. Exactly, exactly. So we used yeah. to have this old saying, I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by 6. And, and, and mm-hmm. so a lot, a lot of what we were trained to do was not, to really, was not really more so to harm anybody else but to protect ourselves in, in, if, yeah. it came down to, if it came down to protect ourselves and, and, the, and the community if it came down to do that. I've unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, let me rephrase that. Fortunately, I never had to do that. Although I had been, I was shot at, you know, three months out of the academy. It was, it was the craziest situation. We responded to a, a call where it was a, uh, a shots fired. We got there, pulled up, the front door was open, walked in, and it was a husband, a daughter, and a son sitting in the living room. And I said, we said, well, her shots fired. She, he said, yeah, my wife's in there in the bathroom with my gun. Now, ironically enough, this guy was a D.C. police officer. His wife had got committed to Crownsville Mental Institution. She left one night, and, and they didn't know that she was gone. She caught a cab all the way home and came home and just went crazy. We, she was in the bathroom, and she was just upset. She, had, she hadn't been taking her meds, and she was upset, and she was just shooting in, and out the house, shooting at, in the house. She didn't mean to harm anybody, but we had a person with a gun. As soon as we pulled up, we heard the shots, shots fired. The first thing I did, and the rules in the state police, you, when you get out that car, you never take that Stetson off. You always get out with that Stetson on, and you, you wear that Stetson any time you get out of that car. As soon as that shot was fired, I took that Stetson off and laid it on the ground. <laughs> 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 because the silhouette of that Stetson would have stayed, would have would have stuck out in the shadows. I took that, I took right, that right. hat off and and, right. and and gently placed it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, hopefully that situation ended um, with um, it did, any. It did. Yeah, it did. We 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 got her to put the gun down. We took her back to Crownsville, put her back in, put her back in that night. I actually was in the. Uh, was uh, still uh, in the field training, so I was in the passenger side of the car with her in the back. We took her back to Crownsville, and you know when we got her back there, they put her on her meds. We made sure that she was stabilized, and when she started coming around, she 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 didn't remember anything. 
Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. And 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 explain to people why is it um, because any of us could find ourselves in this situation where there's a domestic dispute. Why are they so dangerous? Why are they so much more um, unpredictable than most? Okay, so from from a personal standpoint, when a domestic is going on, it's a dispute between the husband and the wife. When a third party comes in, when a third party comes in, i.e. the police officer, Normally what happens is if the husband is the aggressor, they, the police officer will, will, will you know, calm the husband down if there's any signs of any injury, you know, start to affect the arrest or something like that. A lot of times what happens is is the wife will turn on the police officer. It's the most dangerous call for any police officer is a domestic. Vice versa, if the wife is the one that's the aggressor and the husband and the police go after the husband, I'm going to go after the wife, a lot of times the, the 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 victim who called in will turn on the police officer because they don't like the way their spouse is being treated. And it, it if you look at it from if you take a step back, once that police officer becomes a third party in that, it's almost like getting involved in somebody else's business. And it's a very tepid, uh, tepid situation where you know how the outcome is going to going to to how, what you know what the outcome is going to be is all based on how that that person is going to respond when it's time for you to do what you have to do. And it's the most dangerous call ever. Anytime we had a domestic call, we always responded with two troopers. We always responded with two mm-hmm. troopers because, you know, mm-hmm. we, it was one police, one trooper per car. We didn't ride with partners, it was one trooper per car. Wow. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, and, and this is something that I definitely wanted to sort of talk about in extensively if possible, but how is it, um, how is what you do, and your profession changed with today's social climate and with threats seeming to come from, you know, nowhere. Um, people who seem to be normal all of a sudden doing things that just seem criminal. Right. So let, let's stick to the, 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 the major issue of the day is, is terrorism. If you go mm-hmm. back, you know, Within the last ten years, you know, we always talked about Al Qaeda and and the, the people they recruited would go to the Middle East to get trained, and they come back and they would you know ex- they would execute whatever plans that Al Qaeda had for them. In between that, you would have some lone wolves, people who were sitting in their living room and and just wanted to fight on behalf of the principles of wh- why you know, people were mad. What we're dealing with now is ISIS, which is Al Qaeda on steroids times 100. There is no more, you know, going to Afghanistan and getting trained. You you can have your neighbor who's sitting at the kitchen table listening to the rhetoric and the conversations that are going on in the news automatically, all, all of a sudden, get get uh, um, you know excited about the whole thing and become 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 a implement implement of the movement become radicalized at their kitchen just because they're fed up with the fundamentals of what we're doing as a, as a country and we're, we're taking advantage of other people. So you can, your next door neighbor who you sat down with and had cookouts with, gone, gone to, you, you know, to baseball games with, become radicalized at a moment's notice. Their recruitment process is much more advanced than anybody could ever imagine. You know, they're using social media at the highest levels to recruit uh, agents within within our country. So a lot of times where you would say, okay, this guy was missing for six or seven months, I think something suspicious about him, and they would check his visa and see that he, you know, went to Afghanistan for, for three months and then he came back, and it would be suspicious. Now you don't have to do that. 
Al Qaeda. I mean, Al- ISIS has a, a magazine. They keep changing the name, but the last time I was checked was called Rumia. On one of their front covers of their magazines, about uh, within this year, it was a picture of a Ford F one fifty, and it was a picture was was kind of photoshopped over this you know beautiful pasture like a Midwest. And the title of the article says "Ultimate Mowing Machine." So where mm-hmm. a dog can dog can sniff you know uh, uh, explosives, but nobody can detect somebody who's getting behind a truck with the intent of mowing down people. And as you've seen recently, this has been a character of some of the implementations they've done that you really can't measure that this is what this person is giving to do. I can, for my company, we rent trucks all the time, SUVs all the time, with the intent of doing something good with it. But if, if I was to rent a truck from... One of the one of the top you know car rental places, and decided that the next time they have a march in D.C. that I'm just going to run through the barricades and just start mowing over people. How do you stop that? How do you stop that? Well, how you stop that is there's always a point of of recognition and a point of commitment. There's something that goes on that changes somebody's attitude that a neighbor may see there and say, oh, that's you know inconsequential. We're at the point now where we have to overwhelm law enforcement with the little, with the smallest things. Then they have to pursue each one of those things to make sure that that person is clear of any, it's clear of any, of doing any wrongdoing or of any, of, of committing any danger. That's where we are right now. Where we used to, you know, you would hear things go on and said, you know what, he was acting strange. Well, at that point, we have to get people to start making those phone calls now, and then we have to get law enforcement to pursue those, those that information that's credible and see if anything pans out because it's going to be hard to detect somebody who takes a pickup truck. Decides to ride downtown, you know, obey the speed limit, drink a cup of coffee all the way downtown with the sole intent of mowing over people in a march. It's going to be hard to detect that. And that's where we are today. Our society right today is at more of a risk than it's ever been because the detection of, of, of these terrorists has become much more difficult to do. You know, interception of telephones and stuff like that really doesn't doesn't will not detect somebody who's sitting in their kitchen table watching news, reading the newspaper, and just all of a sudden they get radicalized. What can I do? And the, the information is out there. How you can, you know, you implement some uh, some some large scale attack without without met, without moving the meter on the on a uh, on a uh, investigation. Wow, wow. So you know what is left other than people just. Um... You know, just like the campaign says, um, see something, say something. That's exactly what you have to do. And what, what, for, the, for the most, and I'll reiterate what I just said, people have to communicate when they see something, no matter how inconsequential it is, because there is a moment where no one can hide the hand that's getting ready, to, that they're going to do something. And it may be something just small, but that little teeny, that little teeny piece of information could stop something that that could turn out to be big. You know, you, you follow what I'm saying? So but right. law enforcement has to be prepared to be overwhelmed by the phone calls, and they have to pursue the, that information. If people feel that if I call in, nothing's going to happen, they're going to stop calling in. Yes. They're going to so, stop calling so, in. So is law enforcement prepared for that, or how, how do they set themselves up to be able to take in that, you know, influx of, you know, calls and information? So every just about I would I would imagine saying because I haven't done the study, but every law enforcement agency has a tip line, 
a tip line. Mm-hmm. You call in that tip line, you tell them this was going on, and you tell them say, I think this person is acting suspicious at you know, suspicious and I think you should you should, you know, put this information down. The way you call law enforcement to the carpet is you get the person's name that you talk to on that phone. And that way I talked to Michael Fordham on XYZ date, and I told him that that person was acting suspicious. If law enforcement is held responsible for doing mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do, you they cannot right. you know pass it off and say, well, you know we found that the tip was inconsequential. Now now you're being held responsible for what you have to do. I mean, I was in law enforcement for the years that I was in. When we got phone calls in, we had to log the phone calls in to to not only to cover our behinds, but to cover the behinds of the people who called in. Right. And these are direct calls that are outside of 911 calls that you would correct, log correct. in and track. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're okay. tip, tip lines. And just ask for the person's name who you're talking to because, you know, we we all have a responsibility now. And if people feel that they – we're already in a, in a temperature of our society where certain portions of the community don't trust law enforcement. So they're not going to automatically call. But I would implore those people who see something suspicious – to call in, especially in this in this climate. I mean, the day that you and I sat down at Starbucks, you know, even though you said I was when you were talking to me, my eyes is always scanning the room, looking for that red behavior. You follow me, right? Saying? So, so right. that so that it doesn't catch me by surprise. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And so, let me ask a question because um, you you do this kind of work here and abroad, and Correct. um. How is this done abroad, and what are some of the guidelines you have to follow? What makes it a lot different than actually working here domestically? Okay, so here domestically, one, the, the, the ultimate guideline, and I try to get the industry to, to follow this guideline, is you should be licensed, number one. The, mm-hmm. the days of being able to travel to another jurisdiction and not working license are coming to an end because most states are now becoming are having compliance agencies that are regulating the security field as a whole. And then some states are not only regulating the security field as a whole, but they're breaking down the security field into each niche market. So let's say, for instance, Virginia. Virginia has what's called the DCGS, Department of Criminal Justice Systems. In the DCGS, they break down the security from monitoring to installing cameras and monitoring to canine to you know uniform guard service to you know uh, executive protection. They break down each niche within the security field, and you have to be licensed to do that work in Virginia, in Maryland. Mm-hmm. You have to, it falls under the pr- private investigation license. Now, to, to answer your question, when you're traveling abroad, when you're traveling abroad, you have to have a broad network of contractors and subcontractors in those areas that are heavily um, where executive protection is heavily used, so that when you enter that 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 country. You have people who are licensed within that country that can provide the protection around, mm-hmm. uh, put that bubble around your client when you're coming in. And what, what happens at that point is when I travel abroad, I become the the the, the uh, expert or technical advisor to the group that I'm that I've already you know contracted to provide the protection. And what I do is I make sure that my network of of, of contractors work by the same standards that I do so that my client who's used to my work, me working them in the United States, doesn't see a change in the service that they're being provided in, let's say, Mexico 
or let's say, mm-hmm. you know, Europe. Mm-hmm. They, they're getting the same quality of, of, of service there. When we, when we come to an arrival, they see, they see us, you know, uh, disembarking from the vehicles, covering down on, on the primary limousine the same way as they would see it in the United States. So that's one of the reasons why I, I, I engaged in that global standard with, uh, with Avery Mitchell so that we could get a standard, so we could standardize the, the train, not only the training, but the licensing across the, country, across the globe so that everybody's working from the same sheet of music. Right, right. And you were a collaborator on this Certified Executive Protection Specialist curriculum. Tell us how that all came together and um, who you work with on that. Okay, so uh, about five years ago, I was uh, I was researching a certification that I, I, I saw a lot of. It was, it was the CAS, which is the Certified Anti-Terrorism Specialist. And I and I and I told the industry, there's no way you can be effective whether you're here in domestically in the United States or abroad without having a measure of some type of anti-terrorism um, in under your belt. One of the one of my colleagues in the industry is named Avery Mitchell was tied into the Anti-Terrorism Accreditation Board, which, which uh, gave that certification. I took the certification, got the certification. Then I took the Certified Master's Anti-Terrorism Specialist uh, certification under ATAP. I finished that. And what happened was the, the two gentlemen who run that agency knew that I was considered the leader in the executive protection field, asked me would I, be, would I consider – Doing the standards for the uh, executive protection within within the global standards, I said absolutely. So myself and Avery got together, we put the training curriculum together, put it together, submitted it to them. It was accredited and it was passed. And then since then, I assisted with the certified master's executive protection specialist um, certification as well. And what I what I told when I, I went to another conference to speak, and I told the guy the the attendees, I said I can't make you get certified. I really can't. I can only preach it. It's up to you to get certified. But what I can do is to make the people who you protect make you get certified. So what I did was, in the process of us doing this certification, I contacted my mentor in the industry, Paul Violas, who was this uh, security consultant for Chubb and AIG, which which is the top two insurance companies of the world. All other insurance companies especially with the uh, uh, Fortune 1 high net worth individuals, they're insured by them. And they signed on to it by putting it in their uh, policies mm. that if you're going to have the executive protection provided, that the people who provide the protection for you, the company, the primary uh, holders of the company have to be certified in this certified executive protection specialist um, certification, and the people who work for them were protecting you had to be it. So I told them I can't make you get certified, but I can make the people who hire you to do the certif- to to protect them make you get certified. Wow! And Man, that's, that's how awesome. that's how we took we took we took the whole idea and made it mandatory. That's great. Was that your intent from the beginning? It is. It was. So the industry about about six years ago. I was getting pushed by one of my best friends, who's a, a you know a strategic partner with me with my company here in the United States, as well as my wife was pushing me. Says, you know, the industry needs to hear your voice because from a local and regional standpoint, everybody knew who I was. But from a a across the across the United States, people either heard of me or you know didn't really didn't know me. So what I did was I started a blog, and. I, I just immediately went out there on my first blog. If you look on my blog, go to blog number one. I just started attacking the industry, not not from mm. a derogatory standpoint, but from 
the people who are in it. And basically, I said mm-hmm. there 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 are so many, there are too many people in the industry that don't have any business in it. Um, wow. And, and I just and, and I, I blamed I blamed the the pillars of the industry who came out the the larger companies who came out and made success in this industry. They made their millions, sat back. In their on their on their in their in their you know their huge homes smoking their cigars and just left the industry alone and people start sneaking in because it was a cool thing to do and now we were we were populated by people who were not trained not certified didn't know what they're doing and they were affecting the industry to the point that ten years ago when I went to a client a new client I had to explain to them what executive protection is. Mm-hmm. At the time I started that blog, whenever I sat down with a new client, I had to explain to them what executive protection was not because these the whole image of these bodyguards had changed the temperature of what executive protection looked like. So I had to go in here and defend what we, were, we had been doing for years from a professional right. standpoint and say, that's not us. Mm-hmm. That's great. And yep. uh, most people have that misconception. But, you know, if that's something that's a part of your business and you have that misconception, that's not good. And and, and even with the term bodyguard, I did a a, uh, survey, monkey survey, um, some years back with a a good friend of mine who who had a doctorate degree. He helped me put this survey together. And and the the aggregate pool of of, of, uh, people that we surveyed were 25 and above. Made made anywhere between seventy five thousand and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and owned a home because those were the people in my career were the decision makers on whether they were going to hire me or not or contract my services and the question I asked three questions when you hear the term executive protection specialist do you think do you do you think trained untrained or professional when you hear the term United States Secret Service, do you think trained, untrained, or professional? When you hear the word bodyguard, do you think trained, untrained, or professional? And we, we, mm-hmm. we polled 500 people, and I'll just get mm-hmm. down to the, to the end of it. So from an executive protection specialist standpoint, it was pretty much split between trained and professional. Uh, Secret Service is about the same thing. It was, it was trained and professional. But from the word bodyguard, 495 people responded untrained. So I told oh. the industry, if you use that term for mm. yourself, this is mm-hmm. what the decision maker thinks of you. Hmm. That's why when people say, are you a bodyguard? I say, oh, I don't use that word. I'm an executive protection specialist or a security professional. Do not use the word bodyguard when, when using my name in a sentence because that's what a decision maker thinks. Think untrained. Because the media, because of so many uh, uh, snippets on TMZ and other media about bodyguards, you know, beating up people and stuff like that, when you use that word term bodyguard, most people think, who at least are decision makers for my industry, think you're untrained. Wow. And before we um, run out of time, and um, we're in a good, comfortable spot now, I wanted just to make sure people understood what they could get from your book, who should buy your book, and also um, where you can buy your book. Uh, I know it's on Amazon, but maybe on some other resources as well. Right. So 
if if you can buy it from Amazon and just type in uh, Securing the Sacred, it'll pop right up. It, it's probably one of the first two books that'll pop up, if not the first book that'll pop up. You can contact me directly if you want one signed and just email me at E K O N O H I A at B is in Bravo, P is in Papa, I is in India, the word group. USA. That's e Kono here at bpigroupusa.com, and the the soft cover is thirteen ninety nine. The hard cover is nineteen ninety nine. If you want it signed, I'll I'll sign it and send it to you. Um, that's how you can you can you can obtain the book. The book was was specifically targeted for the church industry, the 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 church sector. So anyone who is the head of security for any whether it's a large, a large uh, uh, congregation or small congregation, you need to read this book because you can change your, the security of your church extremely fast by using what you ha- already have. This book is not about hiring a security company to come in. It's not about necessarily hiring police officers to come in because I even talk about why having police officers in your church actually works against you as opposed to working for you. I talk about all of that. And I come from a mm, police officer's wow. background. So I'm 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 I can be I can talk liberally and, and aggressively about police or policing altogether. So I talk about that specifically. If you're a security professional, you can use this book to change your mindset on how to implement the principles of security and not necessarily trying to dig in the church's pocket to to make money because I think that if you're if you're relevant to someone and you you teach them how to do things and teach them how to do it for themselves you will always be able to to make money off of them later because they're going to always refer to you to somebody else so the way this book is is targeted like I said is for the church um, I've 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 given this book out to pastors um, who who I felt felt needed to church matter of fact I was at a um, at a Masonic uh, event at a church and it ended at a church and while we were sitting there I was looking for behavior that wasn't consistent with church with with a church uh, gathering and I noticed this lady standing up when everybody else was sitting down and and then at this point in time it made more sense for everybody to sit down because nothing was going on for anybody to stand up. And I, I was looking at the corner of my eye, and I saw her start walking down the aisle, walking down the aisle, walking down the aisle. Nobody else was paying attention. And then she walked up on the pulpit, and I, I started to stand up. I said, you know what, let me stay in my place. The pastor never stopped talking. The assistant pastor was standing there looking at the lady, looking at the lady, and then all of a sudden the usher went down and escorted the lady out. I immediately gave that pastor one of my books. I said that should, that could have been curtailed early on in the process because your ushers know the personality of the church. Your ushers know yeah. what it looks like when a when a visitor comes into church because a visitor visitor acts differently than a normal parishioner. Those are the people that are your first line first line of defense because they understand the character. I understood that at this portion of the service, nobody should be standing up. But she was not only standing up, but she wasn't. Her behavior was not consistent with what was going on in the church. It has a behavior at any given time. You know that when offering comes up, people are moving around. When there's a call to altar to give your life to Christ or whatever you want to do, there's a different behavior. Anything outside of behavior is yellow or red behavior. And I told him, I said that could have been curtailed a long time before she got up there because at the, when she got into that pulpit, it was already too late. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, 
within the last decade or so, there's been an un, it's been a really strange. It's the only way I can put it: attack on the church, mm-hmm. and um, you know, a place that was once sacred, that was once lauded, that people are, you know, thinking to do harm to people there. Were you know, again, it just wasn't thought of, and you, no. you see it happening more often. And people taking out revenge, people who are actually members of the church as well on various other members. And um, the Correct. things that are going on within the church walls are, are just seem to be um, it's a little out of control. And I'm, I'm not that's understanding why, why it's exactly, going that's, on. That's why the book is titled Securing the Sacred. Yeah. Securing the Sacred. Because it, it's supposed to be a, the church is, is at on any given Sunday, that's the most populated place in the world. On Sundays, mm-hmm. you know, so at that given time, anywhere between seven o'clock and four o'clock, that is the most populated uh, 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 portion of where people are is in the church on Sunday. And it, if if you're not careful what you're doing, you know, if you just if you believe in numbers, numbers say that with that amount of people there all the time, something bad's going to happen. Um, if you take the climate of today's what's going on today with with the with with ISIS and 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 what's going on, that's all a religious battle that goes back, you know, before the beginning of time. And that is a that is a consistent issue that if not dealt with. The, you you potentially put yourself in 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 harm's way. Wow, wow. Well, Eric, you you've given us quite a bit, man. Um, more than an earful, and um, I really <laughs> appreciate you taking time out to share your expertise. Um, you definitely said some things I've not heard before, and gave us some insights on some things that we would not have thought of otherwise. And um, I, I recommend everyone who is a, a leader in the church. Um, you know, pick up this book and um, bring it to a meeting, um, you know, put it in the hands of the right person and make sure that you guys are uh, doing what's correct and appropriate for your church to, um, you know, secure your sanctuaries. Absolutely. And and if you need me to come in and speak to the church, I will. I, I, I'm not going to charge you anything. I think it, I think that everything doesn't have a dollar sign attached to it. I think it, you know, your your safety is more important than me making a, a penny. I do well. My company does well. I don't I don't put a, attach a dollar sign to everything that I do. Mm, that's awesome. You know, and uh, it's great that you put that out there too because you, you will get some calls now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and um, is this um, is this just for churches locally, or are we talking about? Um... Well, so so yeah, local, from a local standpoint, from a local standpoint, mm-hmm. I will travel to your church and talk to you. If, if you can get a couple of the pastors together, a couple of the decision makers together, I will come mm-hmm. out and talk to you because it's easier for me to do that. If I have to travel, it's going to be some time involved in that because you know, my schedule doesn't. My schedule is extremely busy with my with my clients as well as my family and other things that I'm involved in. But we can make it happen. That's for sure. Absolutely. So I'll just put it out there then for the DMV and the DC yeah. Maryland okay, that's fine. area. And uh, just so I can clarify that because <laughs> my father's away listeners in Fiji, but um <laughs> that's real. Hey, you know what? Fiji's a beautiful place to visit. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So um but um look, Eric, it's been it's been fantastic um, talking with you again and um, we look forward to having you back on again because there's some other things that we would love to talk with you about me you know 
And our oh, little yeah. um Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, you imparted yeah, a great deal of wisdom and oh man, it was just amazing. There's some there's some deeper stuff I know you want to talk about, but yeah, we'll we'll we'll, yeah. we'll save that for another time. That's a teaser. Stay yeah, tuned when, when, when that name comes back up again. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And um, also, man, you know, I just want to say, dude, I'm really proud of you. Um, you know, it's it's really amazing to lose contact with someone you've known for so long, and then to find out that they have done and accomplished so much in their lives and become this person that you always knew they could be. And it's just amazing to be able to witness that. Well, I, I, I will say this, Mike, I, I, I come from a great stock. I was raised a certain way as you were. We, we, we lived in mm-hmm. the same neighborhood. I, I knew your parents, you knew mine. I knew what the expectations of your parents were of you and of me when we were in front of your house and likewise. So we, we came from that era that has, that has almost been long forgotten. And I think that between the two of us, you know, we didn't turn out bad. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And things could have gone any, any way possible considering, but, um, Absolutely. yeah, it, it's really good. Um, you know, and, um, please say hello to your brother, Jerry, for me as well. I will. And, uh, I will. and um, I will. really appreciate you having on and we looking forward to having you on again real soon. Absolutely. Mike, anytime. Uh, All right, then, Eric. It was a great show, man. Really appreciate it. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you, sir. Take care. Well, we just come to the end of another great show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you. Truth.